so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Tyler Whitman and Dr. Bobby Jamison to talk about their new book from Baker Academic, Biblical Reasoning, as well as how to read the Bible more faithfully. Dr. Whitman received his MDiv in Christian Ministry and THM in Systematic Theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as his PhD in Divinity from the University of St. Andrews. He currently serves as an Assistant Professor of Theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and is the author of God and Creation in the Theology of Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth which explores the nature of God's revelation to creation. Dr. Jameson received his MDiv and THM from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as his PhD in New Testament from the University of Cambridge. He currently serves as an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and has authored a number of books, including Sound Doctrine, How a Church Grows in the Love and Holiness of God, as well as Going Public, Why Baptism is Required for Church Membership, among many others. And now let's join our conversation. Well, guys, I'm really glad to have you here on the Digital Public Square. It's an honor and a treat. Uh, This is a book that I've long looked forward to coming out and then also to be able to have you both here on the podcast. As we get started, though, I want to see if you could kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey into studying some of these topics. Bobby, do you want to start? Sure. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area early in life. I wanted to be a professional jazz saxophonist and actually went to university to try to start a career in music. During those college years, I just was gripped by the preaching of the word in the church I was in and started to have a desire to study the word, teach others the word, immerse myself more deeply in theology. And so I had a pretty strong desire to both preach and teach and be leading in the church, as well as try to dive deeper into theology. And um, that eventually led me to pursue pastoral ministry, studied at Southern Seminary where I met Tyler, and then I wound up doing a PhD in New Testament on the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is a very theological book. But I always had an interest in what seems to be a strange divorce in the way these things happen in modern uh, the modern academy, and even in some ways in the church, where theology and biblical studies or theology and biblical interpretation are often seen as very separated or different from each other. 
And so I was drawn. One of my interests for a long time has been, what is that relationship? How do those things fit together? It seems odd that they would sort of be pulled apart. Uh, and what are right ways to bring them back together? So in some ways, that's a kind of intro to the book's themes. I would say, yeah, for 15 plus years, that's been a significant interest of mine. And my and Tyler's interests kind of converged over time on those things. I grew up as a PK and an MK. You know, I never wanted anything to do with ministry because it just looked hard and, uh, <laughs> and, and it didn't pay well. And I didn't want anything of that. But, uh, you know, the Lord kind of wrote me in, in the middle of college to just saying, man, I really, I need to to do something that is, is, is ministerial. I didn't know what that looked like. Went to seminary pretty quickly, found out I'm not supposed to be a church planner, you know, and I, and I don't think I'm going to be a missionary. And you know, just you know, a couple of things were falling into place and I was being encouraged in the academic route, really enjoyed it. And after seminary, went and did a PhD overseas at, uh, started off at University of Aberdeen and then followed my supervisor to St. Andrews and wrote about, you know, Karl Barth, Thomas Aquinas, tried to kind of learn the, some, some, some of the greats and, um, and how to read them, thought about some fundamental issues about God and the world and everything. And, but really, the doctrine of God, doctrine of Trinity, these were always kind of at the forefront of my interests. And going back to seminary, you know, when I was learning, when I started reading the Fathers, things started clicking for me that I thought, this is really good and this is exciting. <laughs> and, I, and I wish there were more uh, things that were like this. And so that were basically reading scripture just in a different way, right? It was it was richer, I think, than some of the tools I had been given. Not necessarily a replacement of those tools, but it was just giving me more than those tools gave me. And so, you know, yeah, winding uh, route to to writing the book. But eventually, years later, you know, Bobby and I always kept conversations going, and we just f- found ourselves kind of on a, uh, on a similar track. And, we're, and we just thought, why don't we write a book that kind of unites forces, right? And tries to give, present this stuff in a way that would be compelling to, you know, students who maybe in seminary or other scholars like ourselves who may need to be convinced that this is a good way of reading the Bible. Yeah. And obviously we'll kind of unpack some of these themes throughout the interview today. But one of the things I wanted to say early on was what prompted you, Bobby, you started of alluded to this, to kind of the divorce between biblical studies and theology or dogmatics but what prompted to say, this is the book that we need to write and that we need to write it now? Uh, what was that kind of trajectory? Obviously, you guys had been having these conversations, as you said, uh, but what kind of sparked and said, okay, this idea, we want to write a book like Biblical Reasoning. Uh, what was the kind of impetus behind that? Yeah, I mean, um, I had wanted there to be a book that was doing for people what Augustine was doing for me, right? And what Lewis Ayers was doing for me. And you know, I was reading Lewis Ayers talking about Augustine and Basil and Gregory Nazianzus. So I started reading, you know, Augustine and Gregory and Nazianzus and, uh, and Basil and others. and just started thinking like, man, I really want this, uh, a, a book like this. And so, you know, there was an, an early version of something that, you know, of the idea a long while back. And I was like, I actually tried to convince one of our mutual friends to write it. I was like, you need to write this book, Right. And he's far too intelligent and busy with more important things to, uh, you know, to be bothered with <laughs> these sorts of books. And uh, he, he's, he's quite a serious scholar. I think, I think Bobby knows what I'm talking about. But he passed on it. And I think, uh, I think I even tried to like convince somebody else like to, to, you know, to kind of write it at one point. But eventually I was just like, well, you know, I knew Bobby was interested in this stuff because he was writing a book while writing his dissertation. So that, that's a Bobby for you. And so it was on some of the similar themes. And I was like, dude, we should write this book, right? Together. 
And so uh, I think that's just, uh, that's how I came to it, right? But Bobby obviously was already thinking about some of the core themes as well. And it just kind of, two rivers converged. Yeah, so I think, I think um, in a sense, the spark for the book and, and what we develop in a kind of programmatic way is that theological understanding that is derived from scripture can be simply articulated and then turned into rules for reading scripture. And that's a good and legitimate and necessary part of the overall project of reading scripture as a unified whole. And I had basically felt my way into doing a project like that on Hebrews, where I was looking at what Hebrews has to say about Jesus as the son. And I was noticing that a lot of these patristic interpreters, Cyril of Alexandria in particular, were able to kind of hold a lot of things together in terms of Jesus as both human and divine, and in a better way than a lot of modern scholarship was. And that a number of these authors, Greg of Nazianzus, Athanasius, Cyril, they would even articulate in a sort of uh, short, simple rule form. Well, look, you got to read these passages, you know, some of them in light of Jesus' humanity and some in light of his divinity or kind of rules like that, sort of simple statements that help show what you're dealing with. And so I had worked out a little bit of a toolkit and applied it to some specific issues in Hebrews. And then I was more wanting to develop my understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, right on the Trinity in particular. And Tyler and I were just having a number of conversations where we thought, wait a minute, actually, maybe there's a way to sort of deploy this idea of rules for exegesis derived from Scripture's own theology and turn it into kind of a positive statement of theology slash handbook on biblical interpretation and trying to kind of do that at once. So I think Tyler and I had both done some kind of pre-work that was relevant. Yeah, and we were just able we were just able to sort of feel our way toward a common vision and the shape of the project and thought, ah, you know what, this looks like we could about break it in half and do it together. And we're, we're on the same page. So let's go for it. Yeah. I think some Christians, when they come to a topic like this, who may not be kind of steeped in a lot of the academic literature, they're saying, oh yeah, I mean, the way I read scripture and then the idea of theology, these don't seem like they're divorced concepts, but in the academy, they often are. Um, You see kind of a divorce between biblical studies, as you said earlier, Bobby, as well as exegesis and theological studies. And it's interesting to me as an ethicist, this also happens in ethics, where ethics becomes this like either weird handmaiden of theology or this kind of central element of philosophy. But it, it becomes like the application. It's always, well, now I won't say always, but often it's an afterthought. Let's get to the real core truth and then we'll figure out how to apply it. But that's also, I've noticed kind of in my studies, and we've talked a lot about here on the podcast, is the relationship of all of these disciplines and how they're intertwined and interdependent, but also yet kind of, as Bob Inkle say, of theology and ethics, they're materially different, but you should be studying them individually. They're not materially different, though. So can you speak to a little bit of that relationship and maybe the tension that some folks may not know of between kind of the distinction and the academy, at least, between biblical studies and dogmatics or theology? Sure, I'll start. Um, I think as good Protestants, we should have an instinct to privilege what Scripture says and submit to it um, and be appropriately sensitive to the possibility of human understandings that have developed over time, being mistaken, need to be corrected by scripture, etc. But that can become an overreaction or a kind of hypersensitivity or anxiety to where you start to treat any pre-understanding as if it's inevitably distorting. 
But that's not how all pre-understanding works. Uh, the better I know my wife, the better I'm going to interpret what she's saying in any given moment, responding to some uh, emotionally charged situation. My pre-understanding, hopefully, is going to help me listen to her better, understand her, serve her. So, so everybody brings pre-understanding to a conversation or to an interaction or to reading a text. The question is, uh, how do we form a, a proper pre-understanding that comes from Scripture and sort of articulate it in a way that will serve as, as lenses that help, help us genuinely discern what's there in the text? So in a more academic vein, I think what you have is differences of disciplines that should be sort of complementary and informed by each other and all sort of working together for a big synthesis. That And frankly, earlier generations of Christians, whether in the patristic era or medieval or reformation, they often had a more sort of integrated synthesis here that was kind of healthier in some ways than our theological culture. But what's happened in theology done sort of in the modern university or downstream from the modern university is these things have been sort of split and fragmented. And there's become these kind of turf wars over, well... You theologians don't get to say what the Bible means because, you know, we biblical scholars know languages and history and culture and context. And you can't hope to understand, you know, what's going on in John's gospel if you don't know, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls and apocalyptic Judaism and all these sorts of other things. And so there's a kind of turfiness or defensiveness where these boundaries are policed instead of being sort of complementary uh, exercises, like <laughs> complementary modes of pursuing health. You know, it's good to run and lift weights if you want to be an athlete, right? <laughs> Those things aren't in opposition. But yeah, in the modern academy, these things kind of theology is oftentimes seen as a kind of imposition on the text or just a sort of free form conceptual development. And biblical studies is pursued in a more strictly historical way where there's no room for asking sort of properly theological questions, even though the text itself is about God, <laughs> Right. Like it's God. All the all those books they're they're talking about God. And so I think what happens is even when evangelical scholars have sometimes been trained in these institutions or sort of work within these systems, what should be very close friends have become enemies. And so, yeah, there can be a kind of knee jerk reaction of, wait a minute, you, you know, don't impose an understanding on the text. Uh, and, and it's almost as if theology inevitably does that. That's part of what we're responding to. Tyler, do you want to add anything or from a different angle? I think that's really accurate. I, I really like what Bobby said about pre-understanding. I mean, that, that's a really clear way of articulating the relationship, I think, that we're we're going for. It's it's quite intuitive. Everyone will agree to this on some level, right? No, in other words, no reading of the Bible is somehow completely divorced from theology, right? Even if someone's reading scripture and saying, well, this text, you know, may talk about God, but it's not about the Trinity or something. Well, I mean, that's that's a loaded theological claim because, you know, God can't not be the Trinity, right? If he is who Jesus says he is, right? <laughs> so there's there's always some pre-understanding at play. And so part of what we're trying to do is is, is say, yeah, that, that relationship just needs to be brought out in an explicit uh, way. And we need to talk about it and then maybe relate these two disciplines in a way that's fruitful for us to actually use. The only thing I would add would be that you know, the disciplinary um, split between biblical studies and, and systematic theology isn't entirely bad. It has, you know, I think sometimes when we are working to kind of reintegrate things, we, we can maybe sound an overly negative note or whatever. But surely there are plenty of examples on both sides of, of people, theologians who could use a bit more biblical 
studies savvy and biblical scholars who could use a bit more theological understanding. But just like, you know, the devolution, right, of natural philosophy into the hard sciences, as we know now, you know, that comes with some losses, okay? But it also comes with some undoubted gains, right? As anyone who takes Tylenol will tell you, right? Um, <laughs> we have modern medicine to think for that. So there, there are some, there are some real gains. Uh, I think mostly on the biblical study side, you know, like yeah, more attentive to some of these background things. They really do dig their noses into things that not all of us can have expertise in, and you know, we 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 know some interesting things about the biblical text as a result, and that helps us do our job. So we're not. And trying to trying to bring the two together, we're not trying to dismiss right the real gains of both disciplines as disciplines. We're trying to actually bring them into a fruitful conversation. Yeah, it reminds me, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, um, in some sense, in terms of ethics and especially Christian ethics, and the way that we often frame this in terms of method is I, there are a number of ethicists that I wish had a little bit more biblical studies training and a little bit more theological training. But in the same respect, there are a lot of theologians doing ethics that I kind of wish had a little bit more ethical training and philosophical training to understand these systems. So that's why I keep coming back to, I love that quote from Bob Inc. in Reformed Dogmatics, where he says, you know, theology and ethics, he's talking about dogmatics and ethics are not materially different, yet they're formally distinct. And so while we should and can study them independently, uh, they're very much related, especially in terms of the heart of God of not only what God has revealed of himself in scripture, how we interpret those things, but then also how we apply and what do we do in response. And so I just start, I love that. And we've done that a lot here on the podcast, talking about the relationship of philosophy, theology, and ethics. And so uh, one of the questions that I wanted to get to before we kind of dive into the toolkit, though, these 10 rules that you've created throughout the book, and then you start to apply them at the end, you talk about, I mean, even the title of the book itself is Biblical Reasoning. And I think for some, when they approach that, they go, oh, I don't totally know what you mean uh, when you're utilizing that term. So when you're using the term biblical reasoning, what is that? And how does that kind of relate to like, uh, exegesis as well as kind of theological studies? And is there someone, I think early on you talk about who kind of influenced that at least. But can you tell us a little bit about the background of why you wanted to title this biblical reasoning? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to answer that. I mean, biblical reasoning is an obvious to those who know, right? It's an obvious ode or homage to the late John Webster, who has a, a really fun and, and wise, I think, um, article by that name, Biblical Reasoning, where he's basically giving voice to a lot of the kind of methodological cues we take in this book. And he's just saying that Yes, you have what you might call a kind of exegetical form of attention where you are following along with the, the grammar and the syntax of the biblical writings and you are trying to figure out what they say, hopefully in the original languages and, and all the rest, right? You're paying attention to John's nuances and Mark's nuances and Daniel's nuances and all the rest, right? You're, and, and you're doing this, but he says, but then it kind of broadens out, right, into a form of kind of synthetic reasoning, right? Where you're kind of drawing all these things together and you're doing uh, what he calls dogmatic reasoning. And that's where you're, you're saying, you know, what Daniel says about God and what John say about God are related to one another and they cohere and you got to figure out how. And rather than taking the kind of escape route that a lot of higher critical scholars take, which is to just say, rather than trying to figure out how they harmonize and then to be responsible for having done a lot of research on all the books of the Bible, they just say, well, you know, there's just irreconcilable differences here between these books. And, you know, 
or irreconcilable differences even within books, right? They're just like, well, you know, there's no coherent theology here. There's, there must be multiple traditions or something. Rather than that, you know, the, the, the approach of biblical reasoning has to take one of saying, well, no, they, it is all symphonic. It's all harmonious. And so we do need to kind of figure out how these many voices are saying something in common. And so biblical reasoning gives voice to that two-step process, right? Exegetical and dogmatic kind of form of reasoning, how they're all part of one mode of attention to scripture. And that mode of attention is fundamentally not trying to figure out what St. Paul really said, but really you're trying to figure out you're, you're, you're on a quest to behold God, to know and enjoy him forever, right? That's ultimately what he says at the heart of that essay is that uh, scripture is given to us so that we might know God. And even though, yeah, in a kind of post-enlightenment setting, we might think that uh, um, human reason just is not suited to kind of knowing transcendent realities like God and so forth. And speaking about, you know, kind of metaphysically charged, invisible spiritual things, he says, actually, by virtue of it being created by God, that's exactly what, what human reason is supposed to do. That That is its it's divine vocation, right? It's calling to God. So anyway, that at the heart of it is a kind of allusion to John Webster and that kind of modus operandi, right? That's what we're, that, that vision of the reader of scripture is someone who is pursuing God. And it's totally endorsing what Tyler said. Um, one feature of Christ's redeeming work in the gospel is that human reason itself is regenerated, renewed, redeemed. Uh, not perfectly in this life. It's a, the process has begun and is progressive and is imperfect, but nonetheless, God renews our reason. And part of loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is attending to his revelation in a humble and studious manner. And so by biblical reasoning, we mean, you know, applying that renewed reason to the task of uh, reading all of scripture in the effort of coming to know God better and conforming our minds and wills to his more closely and so in that sense, biblical reasoning is a kind of umbrella term for the whole task of theology. And like, like Tyler said in Webster's essay, he just gives a particularly clear articulation of the role, the roles of dogmatic and exegetical re reasoning, the relationship between them. And so in a sense, that's why we took this as our kind of motto or banner. <laughs> because basically when I read that essay almost 10 years ago now, I just thought I've never heard anyone articulate this as well as he does here. And so that's kind of a program, uh, not so much that Webster articulated this sort of rule approach, although I think he would have been sympathetic with it. But yeah, this interrelationship between dogmatics and exegesis and how they're mutually informing is crucial to our agenda. I know early on in the book, you kind of set the stage by talking and kind of defining not only what you mean by biblical reasoning, but also the difference between the ends and the purpose of something. And so I think often we're, we hear a lot of times this language of the ends don't justify the means. We hear the ends or the purpose and the telos and all this language gets thrown out. And I think for some folks, they seem very, very much related concepts of ends and purposes. But you also wisely kind of distinguish them in the book. So can you help us to understand a little bit about the distinctions between that language and how you're employing it in the work? Yeah, the end of something is it's telos. That's something that's embedded in a given thing, right? By its creator. Okay. So if I make a pen, let's say I'm a pen maker and I actually make a pen to write with, you know, the, the end of the pen is to be used for writing, right? It's to be useful to, you know, it's not to be used as a sword, right? <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword, but the pen is not the sword, right? And so it has an it has a different end, right? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of have a, uh, 
a somewhat odd illustration of this about involving a toddler and his father's Bible and a toilet that may or may not be autobiographical. But um, yeah, if something has an end, then that's what it's supposed to do when it flourishes. Now, a purpose is something quite different, right? So the end of a cow is to do cow stuff, to moo and to, you know, <laughs> eat grass and all the all the things a cow does, right? Not to think of it that it's a chicken, you know. But uh, the purposes of a a farmer may be different, right, than the end of a cow. The, the, he's going to have the ends of the cow in mind because he wants a healthy cow. But ultimately, if the farmer is, you know, if, if somebody wants beef and they're going to pay the farmer good money for the beef, well, then the farmer's purposes are all of a sudden they might clash a bit with the end of the cow, right? The cow's end is not to be a hamburger, although thankfully. The cows are given to our purposes. So that's just the basic distinction there. When I talk about this in class, I usually just talk about it in terms of hospitals, you know, like hospitals hopefully have a kind of end as the kind of institution they are. And that's to to make people healthy and to promote their health. But if a hospital became known as a place where you went to go get amputated, you know, where like 80% of patients who walked into the hospital come out amputated, right? We would say something like they've lost their way, right? (laughs) Something's wrong here. So ends are kind of good metrics. They're, they're things that enable us to be able to tell when something's gone right or wrong. Whereas purposes, right, can be right or wrong, um, but usually with reference to ends, right? Well, just to plug in that analysis to the book's overall agenda, uh, the ultimate goal of our salvation is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ in, in an unmediated way and to be satisfied by that sight and transformed by it forever. And so if you back up, if that's our ultimate end, Uh, that God has ordained for us and that he's graciously given to us. Scripture furthers that end. It serves that end by revealing God's glory in Christ, uh, by giving us this whole multifaceted formation from God's grace, his demands, how he savingly intervenes, the examples of his people, all the sort of rich multifaceted uh, stuff of Scripture. And that particularly, then in order to make use of Scripture rightly toward that end, One of the things we have to attend to is the ways our own minds need to be disciplined, purged, purified, the kind of naturally wrong ways we think about God, whether due to our limitations, finiteness, or more particularly our fallenness and our opposition to God. Those all need constant tending, like a garden that needs weeding and plucking and pulling out. And so keeping the ultimate end of uh, us as Scripture's readers and of Scripture itself in view helps attune us to the fact that part of the task of full-orb scriptural interpretation is purifying our own minds to be able to better and better perceive the glory of God revealed in Scripture. And so in a sense, that's a kind of warrant for explicitly theological exegesis, for making distinctions that pertain to God, uh, that pertain only to God or to God and his relationship to creatures and so on, that are not just the kind of things that you talk about if you're reading the newspaper or reading a, a work of history or reading a novel or that kind of thing, that given scripture's end and our end and the way scripture sort of um, prods us toward and sustains us toward that end, it's appropriate and fitting for us to look at the ways that scripture challenges merely human categories and requires a sort of divinely calibrated toolkit. Because scripture is talking about God, we need to attend to the ways that that human language is uniquely bent and pressured and sort of, um, you know, custom molded in order to speak about God by looking at the way that scripture itself talks.
One of the things that I found really fascinating about the book, and part of this is just kind of my background in ethics, is that within kind of the ethics community, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say debate at least, but there's a lot of distinguishing between a Trinitarian ethic or a Christological ethic, or you even see this in some theological disciplines of a Christological interpretation of the Imago Dei. Things like that, where you start to see Christological, you start to see Trinitarian, especially in uh, ethic circles, we're seeing a Trinitarian ethic being promoted or talked about, especially recently, or a theological ethic versus a a Christian ethic, like making all of the kind of these distinctions. And so I know in the book, you also talk about kind of the difference between a Christological interpretation and a Trinitarian interpretation, how that kind of informs some of these rules that we'll talk about here in a second. So I want to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit. So within this discipline, specifically biblical studies and dogmatics, when you use the language of Christological or Trinitarian interpretations um, or Trinitarian frameworks, what do you mean by those terms? And how does that kind of affect the way that we view and understand Scripture? We have a quote from uh, Aquinas' Compendium of Theology as a sort of epigram to the whole book, which says, All the knowledge imparted by faith revolves around these two points, the divinity of the Trinity and the humanity of Christ. And Aquinas, in setting that up as a kind of um, banner over the whole of theology, is saying that there are two sort of central mysteries to our faith. One is the, the triune identity of God, and one is the incarnation of the divine son. And so we're, we're not um, saying these are like two methods or two systems or two sort of frameworks. Well, you, if, if the weather is this, you put on your Trinitarian jacket. And if the weather is this, you put on your Christological jacket. It's more like these are mysteries. We cannot fathom them or comprehend them. We can only have a partial understanding of them. These are mysteries at the heart of who God is and what he's done to save us. Uh, these are mysteries that uh, we, all, we can only access by revelation. We couldn't come to these conclusions just by uh, observing the natural world and reflecting on it or using human reason and deducing from it. So they're mysteries. They're revealed mysteries. Uh, they're central to our faith. And they put unique <laughs> pressures on human minds and human language. They're, they're difficult to grapple with. We have to wrestle with them. If there's a kind of moreness, you know, we believe in one God, but he's also three persons. You know, or Jesus Christ is evidently a human being, but he also doesn't say stuff that forces you to confess he's divine. So there's this kind of fullness or moreness or somehow having to think about multiple realities at one time. That is true of both the Trinity and the person of Christ. And so even though those mysteries are distinct, they, they have that sort of parallel or similarity. And, and often what happens is in passages that explicitly teach these mysteries, you could start at the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, well, how can the word both be God and be with God? Somehow we're saying two complementary and distinct things about the word and saying them at the same time, and one of them is an identity with God, and yet somehow there is also a distinction from and a relation to God. Even in order to explain that one verse, we need a distinction between, apparently, two different ways of speaking. And so there's a sense in which we're, we're just saying these are Christological and Trinitarian rules for exegesis because those two mysteries are at the heart of the faith. And they, in a sense, require some of the most theological sensitivity and malleability in how we read scripture. Uh, and they take some of the most work. It, it's kind of like um, the simplicity on the far side of complexity is what we're aiming at. So you, could, you could look at a passage like John 1.1 and say, 
Yeah, John is speaking about the word uh, in two distinct modes or registers, one insofar as he is divine and one insofar as he uh, exists in an eternal relation to the Father from whom he derives his being, which John goes on to unpack at great length throughout his gospel. So in a sense, the we have a focus on, uh, the rules don't begin there. They begin with uh, more scripture as a whole and God in relation to creation, but they wind up with specific Trinitarian and Christological prescriptions. Um, how, how can we, in summary fashion, look at how scripture speaks about God in this one and yet three way, or how it speaks about Christ in this uh, singular person yet twofold nature kind of way? So obviously, the bulk of the book is kind of unpacking and developing these 10 rules that you've come up with and kind of helping folks to understand better ways of interpreting and thinking through a lot of these realities. So without a doubt, obviously, we could spend an entire podcast or multiple podcasts just kind of unpacking one or two, much less a whole set of 10. So we're not going to do that. I encourage folks to go get the book. Um, Not only do you all kind of lay out the toolkit, but then you actually apply that toolkit to a specific passage, which I think is really, really helpful, especially for folks who may be newer to some of these nuances and debates. But I was going to ask, are there is there a particular rule or mo- maybe multiple rules that you think are particularly helpful given some of the maybe controversies or given some of the debates or maybe even given some of the cultural pressures which we, we have today being Christians in a more pluralistic age? Are there any of these questions that you think are more helpful or better informed maybe for the particular moment than we're in? Obviously, given the fact that all of them kind of hang together, I know you can't isolate them in that sense. Uh, but are maybe some that kind of help shed light on some uh, contemporary debates, whether in theology or even in ethics, uh, that kind of help us to, as you said, Bobby, and I really appreciate it, is we talk a lot about here on the, is the Great Commandment and kind of the summation of the law and prophets. That's also the summation of Christian ethics, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And so as we're thinking through that and thinking through how do we apply scripture in a, a more pluralistic age, were there one or two maybe questions that kind of stick out that you think are more helpful given the pressures we face today? You know, I mean, it, like you you just said, Jason, they do all kind of build on one another. And that's why in the book, they we really do. They, they kind of stack up in the very last rule chapter, right? We can only actually get you the rule by stacking it on top of all the other ones, right? It, 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 you know, it kind of works that way. And I think that's how it worked for someone like Augustine and, and others, even when they're not you know, explicitly articulating this. So it's hard to just pick one out. But I mean, I think when, when we're going around illustrating, hey, you know, here's a good, you know, taste, right, of what we're up to, we usually jump towards partitive exegesis, right, which is really, that was a chapter that Bobby was a primary drafter on. He wrote a whole book on this and this subject in in Hebrews. And so uh, I'll let him talk about that, you know, in terms of like, man, what, what would be rules that would be really uh, relevant to our, our moment? There are rules like that, that would help us navigate faith, you know, being faithful within our, within our culture, not to it, as John Webster would say, but we didn't write about those rules. <laughs> like there, so in other words, there are, there are plenty of rules that Christians have used throughout history that we just didn't include in this book. We had to leave some, a lot of things on the cutting floor. I mean, you know, we got this idea of rules really from Augustine. He's explicitly drawing on another guy named Tychonius. And if you look at Tychonius's, you know, he, he kind of wrote this handbook on, on rules in the early church, two of them that are pretty relevant, I think for ethics and so, and so forth. I'll just kind of leave this as kind of like maybe a, an, an extra, 
And one of them is that is that well, not only do you have to distinguish between you know Christ's two natures, but you also have to distinguish between Christ as the head and Christ as the body, right? The in terms of the whole church as the the mystical Christ, right? We are the body. The church is the body of Christ. So that gets you into some ecclesiological um, matters, right? But also one of his rules concerns the promise and the law, right? Or, you know, especially as like someone in the Lutheran tradition, like Flacius would would have it, like the, the, the rule about the law and the gospel, right? And so that is, of course, perennially super important in terms of how scripture is to be applied, right? To the Christian and grace committed to us. So just, you know, if there's ever a biblical reasoning part two, right, maybe we'll, it'll be about like eschatology, the church and, and the gospel and, and, and the law or something, but, but that's not really what we dealt with here. So it, it's not to say that our book is unethical. It's got plenty of ethics in it, right? It's got, it's got but it only, they, they only crop up uh, so, so much. So, but anyway, I think part of the exegesis is the, is, is the real, the real taste of, of what we're doing here. And I, I think Bobby should, should talk about that. Sure. So one of the most immediately useful rules in the book is what we call part of exegesis. Uh, Just to articulate the rule, Scripture speaks of Christ in a twofold manner. Some things are said of him as divine, and other things are said of him as human. Biblical reasoning discerns that Scripture speaks of the one Christ in two registers in order to contemplate the whole Christ. Therefore, read Scripture in such a way that you discern the different registers in which Scripture speaks of Christ, yet without dividing him. So Christ is one person, not two agents or subjects kind of trading places or sort of, you know, hidden under a cloak or something like that. But some of what Scripture says about him has reference to, is true on the basis of, uh, his human nature. You know, a classic passage where this often comes up is in the discussion of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, which we discuss in the book. Where at the end, uh, it says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him and put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Sometimes people wonder, is this talking about an eternal subjection? Does that have any kind of implication for eternity past? Is this simply talking about the relationship of the son to the father per se? And I think part of exegesis helps tune our ears to the fact that this is speaking of Christ in a human register. It's speaking about him in a very human way. His humanity is very relevant to the context. He's called a man in verse 21. He's portrayed as the second Adam in verse 22. He's fulfilling the role of the son of man who receives authority and power and dominion in Daniel 7. He's, uh, Paul's alluding to Psalm 8, which is about the dominion and glory God has given to humanity at creation and how Christ fulfills that and brings it to its completion. So there's all these clues in the text that Paul's speaking about Christ in a particularly human way and that he's completing his human act of mediation of bringing God and humanity together forever. And so it's fitting that he renders submission to the Father. It's fitting that he submits to the Father. And even if there's a sense in which that persists uh, into the perfected state, into the glorified state, it's still an act as a human being and of a human being. And so part of exegesis is simply discerning that uh, not everything applies to Christ in the same way that scripture says. Some of what it says is only true and can only be true because of the incarnation he undertook for our sake. And I think once you see that, it helps you kind of, oh, I can give that submission its full scope. I can give the Father is greater than I in John 14 its full scope. I can give all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me its full scope. 
while also recognizing at the same time that according to his divinity, he always has all authority. According to his divinity, he always deserves to be worshipped by all. According to his divinity, he is equal to and united with the Father. And part of exegesis recognizes that those things are both true at the same time, and that scripture is often speaking of one or the other. Well, we have a little bit of time left. This has been a fascinating conversation so far, but this is going to be kind of a quick hit in terms of questions. And one of the things that you know early on is that you have kind of two different audiences. Obviously, there are two authors, so you each kind of have someone in mind. Um, and so that makes kind of an interesting writing a book together, I know, is an interesting challenge. And maybe we can have you back on the podcast to talk a little bit about that and then some processes and things like that that you went through. Uh, but you also have kind of two audiences. You're speaking to biblical scholars and you're also speaking to theologians and trying to get everyone to kind of play together in the same sandbox. Like we have some d- unique features and benefits to uh, studying these things individually, but also studying them together and kind of that that twofold purpose. But a lot of folks who are listening to this podcast or maybe kind of intrigued by some of the conversation are neither. They're neither theologians nor biblical scholars. Obviously, this kind of rule book isn't just for academics. You would say in many ways, this is for the church. Um, It's helping the church to be wiser about the way that we approach and interpret scripture. So I wanted to see if there are any particular maybe encouragement that you would give to believers who are maybe not academics to help them think wisely about the way they read scripture, maybe applying some of these rules, but specifically speaking to kind of the regular church member who's not an academic. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think I think the book is um, is accessible to anyone who is willing to to kind of work through it, right? I mean, we 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 wrote it to yes, uh, students and fellow scholars, but we tried to really make it accessible as much as possible. So, and it's an academic book, but I think that a layperson can can read it because I've seen laypersons read it, right? <laughs> I think Bobby and I have both uh, n- n- know multiple laypersons who have read it. I think the basic encouragement, though, um, that I would I usually give to people, even if I'm just in a community group or I'm leading a Bible discussion, you know, or Bible study, is just to uh, expand your vision for what's going on when you're reading the Bible. Understand that when we read the Bible, we're we're here to be shaped in certain ways, right? Uh, yeah, we're here to learn things, but you know, learning doesn't mean just filling our heads with things. It sometimes it means shaping how we feel, right, and ha- how we want, right? Uh, and desire really how we love. And it's ultimately about that. And that's only going to happen as we come to a greater understanding of who God is. And so, so scripture, this is going on in scripture, right? We are being here addressed by God to know him and to enjoy him and, uh, and, and hopefully to be transformed and you know, to be more like him. And so, you know, that's a point I think a lot of people might think they they understand but i think it does require a little more conscious reflection to really imbibe that lesson and and then to practice it and uh that's that's really at the heart of what our book is is trying to trying to get at i think our chapter on god's transcendence and uh the god fittingness rule is really relevant for lay people and one way to summarize it would just be to say uh god is always going to burst all the categories you bring to him from creation so you want to be very alert to and sensitive to ways you'll unintentionally project creaturely realities or limitations onto the creator and all sorts of ways we unintentionally commit a kind of intellectual idolatry and need to purify our minds through scripture's witness of that and recognize the ways that god totally differs from us uh, and is not like anything in the creation. Creation is like him. He's not like creation. 
And so just to put it simply, God is always going to burst your categories and you want to expect that and embrace that and be looking for ways scripture is doing that. Well, one of the things we always do on the podcast at the end is some recommended resources. I think that's a kind of often, this has been a really thrilling conversation. There's been so much meat to chew on. Um, and I encourage listeners, obviously, to go grab a copy of this book, Biblical Reasoning, uh, subtitles Christological and Trinitarian Rules for Exegesis, published by Baker Academic. I definitely want folks to go and grab a copy of this book and kind of dig into, as you said, is it's, it is written in a very accessible manner in that sense. Even though it is an academic book, it is going to challenge you and push you. Um, it's written in a very clear manner. And I think that's a testament to you two um, and the vision that you set out and the way that you wrote this. Uh, but what are some recommended resources, whether it's a certain figure uh, that you reference or kind of has been very influential in your thought, but one or two resources maybe each that you would say, hey, this is a good next step. Um, and I would, I'll, I'll say unashamedly, uh, will encourage you to share older resources because often I think we go to the newest and they can be very helpful. And obviously this is a newer book um, and these can be very helpful and kind of forming. But I think as Tyler already referenced early on, going back and reading Augustine, reading some of these early church fathers and things like that can be helpful. They can also be pretty overwhelming. So I just say, I'll, I'll say that to you, you all, what are a couple of resources that you might recommend or figures that you think would be really helpful for us to kind of dive into if we want to dig a little bit deeper into some of these topics? Well, we provide in the book itself, a catalog of, of recommended sources, basically in the in, sources and in, index, right? The scripture and ancient sources index on page 286 and following of our book. It's all these fathers and some of these medievals that we appeal to which of their books we're appealing to and where. And so that's, that's a, you know, there's a lot there. If I'm going to highlight maybe just a couple, I would say Athanasius's book on the incarnation. That's a classic. And uh, it's when I have my theology students read in their introduction to theology courses here at uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Gregory Nazianzus's Theological Orations. That's another one I have students read. Cyril of Jerusalem's catechetical lectures are really clear and to the point. But, and this is going to sound kind of strange, but the easiest of the all of these, however, I, I recommend to people to read is Thomas Aquinas's commentary on the Gospel of John. Like, I have uh, my wife. She, she tells me this is her, one of her favorite books. Uh, she was preparing a talk for some ladies in a church several years ago on the Gospel of John was looking at the commentaries that I had, you know, kind of like brought home from the library that I had on the shelf. And she was like, hmm, you know, nothing was really speaking to her. And I was like, well, I can bring you Aquinas. And she was like, yeah, bring me that. And all of a sudden she was like, this is what I'm looking for. And I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's a little different, but, but at the same time, like, I think he's got good stuff in there and he's really, he's really clear. I would just second the recommendation for Gregory of Nazianzus's Theological Orations. There's a paperback edition that's cheap and accessible called On God and Christ. That's his five kind of famous theological orations. And he covers a lot of scripture. He engages a lot of these interpretive issues about how to rightly understand it. And he frames the whole task of theology in light of God's transcendence, his incomprehensibility, how we need to humble ourselves before him. And then he works through the doctrines of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit basically. So there's a, there's a ton of scripture packed in. It's very dense, um, but it's short. It's basically five very polished kind of theological sermons. So I would, I would say start there. 
Well, we'll make sure for listeners' sake to include all of those in the show notes, as well as a link uh, to you all's new book, uh, Biblical Reasoning with Baker Academic. Um, but Tyler and Bobby, I really appreciate you both, not just because of the scholarship you have, but also the way you approach these things and kind of the purpose and kind of intent behind them. Um, it's clear that you love the local church. It's clear that you're not only invested in the local church, especially you, Bobby, being there at Capitol Hill Baptist, uh, but the goal of your scholarship um, is not some kind of dry, academic, stuffy kind of scholarship. It really is to apply these things and help Christians and help the church to apply these things biblically and faithfully. Uh, so I just want to say thank you. It was a real honor to have you guys on the podcast and a treat for me especially. So thanks. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate you, man. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Dr. Whitman and Dr. Jameson, as well as to learn more about their new volume, Biblical Reasoning, including the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.